Welcome to the podcast of Eden Worship Center. We believe that God has perfectly revealed himself through scripture alone, and that salvation comes by grace alone, from faith alone in Christ alone, and that everything is for the glory of God alone. So as we study God's unchanging, inerrant word together, ask God to open your eyes, to open your eyes to see yourself and your own sin clearly. Open your eyes to see Jesus clearly, and pray that God would give you the grace to repent, to turn from your sin, and the faith to trust in Christ alone for your salvation. If you'd like more information, go to our website at edenworshipcenter.co. All right, so turn with me, Exodus chapter 1, I'm going to be reading in verses 8 through 22, and looking, um, see what it is that God has to to speak to us today. Um, So just as a way of a little bit of a disclaimer, um, well, first of all, good job, everyone, on social distancing. Fantastic. I wanted to say bring everyone together, but, you know, that, I guess that isn't wise right now. So, good job. Great. You're, you're social distancing. This is awesome. Um, good job. So, moving on. If you're here today and you would consider yourself to not be a Christian, that you would consider yourself maybe just a spectator, you're not sure what's going on here, uh, first of all, welcome. We're so glad you're here. Um, but I do want to warn you, this is kind of a heavy passage. There's, there's a lot of darkness, there's a lot of evil, there's a lot of despair that we're going to be talking about. And so as I'm giving this message, as I'm speaking to the church body, I'm not necessarily speaking to you. I just want to be really clear about that right up front, that a lot of what I'm going to be speaking today is directed towards those who are saved, those who are Christians who have been adopted into the family of God. But don't, don't tune me out. There's stuff in here for you, too. Just wait. I've got something just for you at the end, especially. So I'm going to start off with uh, reading you an article. How many of you here are familiar with the Babylon Bee? Anyone? <laughs> Those of you who are familiar are already wondering what in the world I'm going to say. Okay. So the Babylon Bee is just a, a satire site uh, based on Christian theology, kind of poking fun at all sorts of things. Don't read it if you get offended easily. I just want to put that out there. Um, they, they poke fun at a lot of things. So that's, I, this is just such a great article, though. It's not real. I, everyone, calm down. Say with me, it's not real. Okay, it's, it's not real. But it does kind of poke fun at something that I just, want to, I just want to say here. Stating that he was shocked at the Lord's ignorant approach to attractional church growth, Self-described church growth expert Mark A. Sloniker was reportedly cringing the entire time he read through several of Christ's popular sermons in the Gospels on Tuesday. The flesh counts for nothing? No one can come to me except for the Father has enabled him? Oh, come on, Jesus, you know better than that. Sloniker reportedly muttered to himself as he read through the sixth chapter of the Gospel of John. Sure enough, the church leadership's gurus fears were confirmed as the text then stated that many of Jesus' disciples no longer followed him. He had such a good thing going with the feeding of the 5,000. Why did he have to blow it? Why not just seal the deal with an extreme men's ministry event or a big Easter giveaway? An exasperated Sloniker added. Flipping through other stories in the inspired accounts of Jesus' life, Sloniker continued to wince and cringe as he read the narratives of Jesus' going ballistic on potential future church members in the temple, and turning away seekers who came asking how they could join him, and constantly preaching on the reality of hell and eternal punishment. 
If only the Savior were as enlightened about church growth as we are, he could have had an honest-to-goodness megachurch. <laughs> if only. So, okay, poking fun here a little bit about this attractional uh, theology that is really popular right now in our culture especially. Um, I want to be really clear. The message that we are about to go through is not that. There is going to be darkness. There is going to be despair. There is going to be deep, deep sorrow that we're going to talk about. See, this is not good marketing. I'm not starting off in a good spot, right? This is not how you get people to come to church and to stay and then put their money in the offering. This is not that. What this is, is being true and honest with what the Bible says. Okay? So we have to look and come here honestly, looking at what it is that the Bible says. If you've been here a part of this church for any length of time, you know that church leadership here is incredibly concerned with making sure that we approach Scripture with honesty and with clarity and with truthfulness. So, raise your hand, and let's actually do this. If you would, okay, Chuck, you're so obedient. Good job. He was just there. He's like, I want it. No. Raise your hand if you would rather have someone tell you a hard truth, but it be true, than to lie to you and tell you that everything's going to be great. Yeah, oh, good. We're all on the same page here. That's where we're at this morning. We're going to be talking about some hard truths. Okay? So this whole idea that you get saved once and the rest of your life is going to be fantastic. It's going to be a bed of roses. You're going to have a lot of money in your bank account. All of your enemies are going to get boils or something. That is not true. The Bible does not promise us that. We are not promised that our life is going to be easy. In fact, we're promised the opposite, that our life is going to be hard. So the question is, what is our response in those hard times? How is it that we view the world? How is it that we view our theology? How is it that we view God and his sovereignty? That is what dictates how we respond. So before we get going too far here, I just want to uh, get a little bit of a shout out to the fact that God in his great providence has scheduled this sermon for today in the midst of great fear and anxiety in our church and in our nation. So I'm just going to, let's just put that right out there. God is amazing. I am not shaping this sermon based on that, but it's going to sure feel like it. This is God. This is not me trying to get you to feel something, okay? So turn in your Bibles. Let's start reading here, verses 8 through 10. And while you're getting there, as we approach this passage with honesty and we see what it is for what it is, this is a passage filled with fear. This is a passage filled with response to that fear. It is filled with horrific, premeditated, evil plots. This is a great playbook, by the way, for all of you who would like to be a dictator someday and need to stamp out a people group because they're kind of a thorn in your side. So if that's you, listen on. This is going to be good. Spoiler alert, it doesn't turn out well for him, so don't actually do that. All right, reading in verse 8, I'm going to go through verse 10. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, 
they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. So we have here, we see that there's a new king that doesn't know Joseph. Joseph was, if you guys don't remember, Joseph was the guy who, um, through many trials and many tribulations, none of them his fault, falsely accused of things, thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, all of that stuff, who then God used in a mighty, mighty way to deliver the nation of Egypt. Okay, so this is Joseph. This is the guy who the nation of Egypt actually owes an awful lot to why they're a superpower in the world. They owe, they owe God, but it was through Joseph. So this king arose, and he wasn't grateful for what God had done through Joseph. He didn't know Joseph. Instead, we read here, he was afraid of these Hebrew descendants of Israel, of Joseph. Dealing shrewdly. Now, let's, let's talk about that a little bit. When you deal shrewdly with someone, it means you're being a little bit sneaky, right? Being a little bit manipulative. Trying to figure out, okay, we can't be really totally out front with this. We have to kind of ease our way into what we're about to do. He didn't want to start with violence too soon, right? His people might turn against him. If he just went full force into it, kill all the Hebrews, chances are really good. His people were not going to be on board with that because there is, a, there is an unmistakable moral code that is placed on the hearts of every single man, woman, and child. Killing is wrong. Okay? So he had to deal shrewdly with the Hebrews. And that's what he's going to be doing here in the next few passages. So we start off with Pharaoh's fear. And his response to that fear, and I believe, it doesn't say it, but I believe that he has a long-term vision and goal here. I believe he knows where he's trying to get to. I believe he has a plan, and he's starting off with this small little manipulation. So let's read here, verse 11 through 14, what that manip manipulation looked like. Starting verse 11. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. Catch this. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So the people just caught up a little bit. They caught up with where Pharaoh is at. They are now in dread of the people of Israel. Keep reading here. Verse 13. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So what was, what was Pharaoh's response? What is his manipulation? How is he dealing shrewdly with the Hebrews? Well, first of all, let's start off with getting them to build us some cities. Sounds good, right? That's an easy thing that a lot of people could get on board with pretty quickly. They're going to, hey guys, don't worry about it. They're just, we're just going to set them to work. They're going to do some stuff for us. It's going to be good. Don't worry about it. Right? Get the people used to the idea of the Hebrews being slaves. This is a good thing. Except for what happened. The Hebrews kept having babies. They kept spreading further and further and further. And so now, the Egyptians, they're on board with Pharaoh's fears. They're afraid as well. They begin to dread the Hebrews. Exactly as Pharaoh wanted, the people became really supportive of his goal in dehumanizing the Hebrews. How do we know that? 
They started treating them ruthlessly. This is not just a, hey, go over here and build this for us. This is now, uh, go build this for us, and we're going to do physical violence on you as you're doing it. Okay? The, the nation of Egypt is starting to, to, to progress here and getting on board more and more and more. They're buying into this fear that Pharaoh is, is pushing out in front. They became really supportive of his goal. But wait, there's more. Let's keep reading in verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a, da a, da if it is a daughter, you shall live. So what we read here is, is one more step. Just one more step on the progression of violence here. You know, we're already treating them ruthlessly. Is it really a big deal if we kill their babies? I mean, we don't want them to spread too far, right? It's not really that big of a deal. So clearly, Pharaoh thought that, that the nation of Egypt was ready for such a drastic thing. They had progressed to a point now where he could continue pushing this fear, and he pushed the fear far enough that now he can start doing something atrocious, absolutely evil to murder unborn babies and see this is this step this continual step as we look at fear and and we react poorly to those things this is why sin is so dangerous it's dangerous because we get comfortable it's dangerous because that next little step doesn't look so bad whereas at the beginning that would have been unthinkable So I want to point out something really sinister here. And again, this is, this is the darkness. This is the despair that I'm talking about. This is just plain diabolical when you really think about it. Why kill only the boys? Why not kill the girls? Why not kill these little baby girls? You see, these daughters have a different kind of purpose in Pharaoh's plan. What's one of the best ways that you can think of to conquer a people? Well, obviously, the best way would be without any bloodshed, right? None. No fighting, no war, no economic strife. That would be the best possible solution. How do you do that? Well, you take their daughters, who are already slaves, who already don't have any choice in what they're doing, and you make sure they end up with Egyptian men. Make sure that, that what happens next is that you're eradicating the, human, or the Hebrew men, leaving the Hebrew girls, and what's left is only Egyptian men for these Hebrew girls. Give it a generation or two, and suddenly you have bred out the Hebrews completely. There are no more. It's gone. This is dark. This is incredibly, incredibly sinister. This is premeditated, horrific, horrific atrocities done against these little girls, or attempting to, thank goodness. Of course, we read it didn't actually work because the midwives didn't obey. So what's the next thing? What's Pharaoh going to do next since that didn't work? Skipping ahead then to verse 22, let's read that. 
Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So he's still continuing on with this idea of letting the daughters live. He hasn't given up on that. But now there's enough fear gathered up that Pharaoh is able to be fully open with all his people. It said it right here, commanded all his people, all of his people, to be fully open with the idea of taking babies out of the arms of their mothers and throwing them into a river. This is horrifying. Can we agree? This is horrifying. Just the picture of that. I can't even imagine the fear that these Hebrew women and men had. An entire nation on board with and participating in the brutal murder of babies. That would never happen in modern day, right? No, not ever. The progression here is horrifying. These were terribly, terribly dark days for God's people. Just let the weight of this. I'm, I'm trying to be really clear how heavy this is because I want the weight of this to sink on your soul and for you to feel sorrow for these people. This was dark. Days of darkness come to God's people. It is real. It is true. It is unavoidable. The fear God's people must have had would have been immense. Okay, so Justin, you've thoroughly made this a downer. Now what? Thankfully, we serve a great God, right? Amen. Amen. Other than death and darkness, what can we learn from this passage? Let's start off with bringing back some hope. Verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. Every single move that Pharaoh tried to make to destroy God's people failed. Let's make them slaves so they stop spreading. Now there's more of them. Let's have the Hebrew midwives kill all the baby boys, except for they disobeyed and there's still baby boys everywhere. Let's have everyone throw baby boys into the river. And let's be clear, there were probably many deaths from that. The Bible doesn't give us an out on this one. Baby boys were thrown into the Nile River. But even in that little bit of success, which probably felt great to Pharaoh, spoiler alert, they still failed to catch the one who God would use to free the Hebrews and bring about their destruction. In fact, that same baby boy, I just love this, that didn't get drowned was raised by Pharaoh's own daughter. God's plan is awesome. It's amazing. You see, every single plot Pharaoh comes up with brought him closer and closer towards his own destruction because God is working in secret to accomplish his plan. God is working in secret to accomplish his plan. Now, what do I mean when I say secret? Am I saying, shh, no, God, don't tell us? Eh, sometimes, yeah. 
That's not really what I'm talking about here. This isn't hush, hush, don't tell secret, but it's more secret as in it's not in our view. We don't see it. And sometimes when it is in our view, it's just so far above us, we can't understand it. So I'm going to give you an example so that this kind of makes sense. Those of you who know me know that I'm not necessarily mechanically inclined. I'm not necessarily a car guy. Like, I understand some basics. I understand how an engine kind of works, that there's gasoline that gets atomized and pushed into this chamber that gets exploded, and then the, the thing, I don't even know what it's called, the thing goes down and that gives power. That's basically what I know. So I have a, a, br a brief overview of how a combustion engine works. Man, everyone who's in here who knows is just shaking their head at me right now. That's the point, right? I don't know. I don't know what it is. It's not that you can't tell me. It's that I just don't understand, right? And if I bring my car that's not working into a mechanic, and I says, it's, it's doing this, like, this noise, and I try to explain it to them, and they're like, no, just, just bring it. You can't do the noise. Just bring it in. If I bring it into them, and they look at it, and they're like, all right, so here's what's going to cost you. And I said, no, I don't want to know what it's going to cost me. I want to know what's wrong. How many of you guys work on cars for other people? Anyone? Okay. Have you ever had to just kind of think to yourself, it'd be so much easier if you would just trust me. I don't think I can explain this to you. Okay, so for those of you who are mechanically inclined, I don't want to leave you out of this. I'm going to give you one that I can, whew, I can feel good about. Um, have you ever had to bring your computer to someone and ask them what's wrong with it? Okay, from experience, I can tell you time and time again, so what was wrong with it? There was a thing, I just, you really want me to get into it? Because I will, but you're, gonna, you're just going to end up being glassy-eyed and not want to know at the end and wish you had. So do you really want to know? I'll tell you. So that is God's secret plan. It's not that he won't tell us. It's not that he can't tell us. Sometimes. But it's that his ways are so much higher than our ways. We don't get it. We can't get it. Our minds are not infinite like his. We're, we're these tiny, tiny little humans and even just the idea of, of viewing God in full force in the Old Testament leaves people with lasting effects. That's just looking at him, let alone him speaking to you. Our God is too big for us to fully understand. That means his plan is too big for us to fully understand. Right. We have to be okay with it. We have to. We, we have to put our trust in him because if we can't, then we can't trust his plan. And if we can't trust his plan, then when these days of darkness comes, we have nothing to grasp a hold of. We have nothing. God is infinitely smarter than you or I. We have to be able to accept that. We have to be able to trust that his knowledge is more than ours. We have to be able to trust that he is good. And most importantly, we have to be able to trust that he is actually in control over everything, that he is sovereign. Okay, now that's a, that's a church word that gets thrown around a lot, especially in this church, because we believe really strongly in the sovereignty of God, the full sovereignty of God. But I'm willing to bet, and this isn't to make you feel stupid, I'm willing to bet, though, if I were to say, what's, what's the definition of sovereignty? 
that it would be a bit of a struggle to come up with what it actually is. So I'm going to help you out. I'm going to give it to you. And this is um, actually comes out of the Children Desiring God curriculum that our fifth and sixth grade class goes through every other year. Sovereignty definition. God is present and active in all creation. His eye is watching. His hand is working to uphold and govern all creation, to fulfill all his purposes for his glory and the good of his children. Amen? That's a great definition, right? His eye is watching. His hand is working for the good of his children. Now, I'm going to point us to a passage here that quite often gets taken out of context and misapplied, and that's Romans 8.28. Go ahead and put that up there. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. So oftentimes this is used as very bad proof that become a Christian, love God, and your life is going to be great. Oftentimes that's, that's, I mean, if you read it just on its surface, that's what it looks like, right? Especially if you pluck that passage out and don't read the next one, which is often what happens. You just need to wait and be faithful when hardship comes. Eventually, God is going to turn it around for your human, earthly, temporal good. That is what is meant there, not for our eternal good. What is usually meant when people say that is for our earthly good. We're going to have a lot of money. Whatever it is, it's going to be turned around. We just have to wait. The problem with that viewpoint is this. How do you tell Hebrew women whose babies were thrown in the river? Just wait. Don't worry about it. God's going to turn this around. You can't. That's the answer. You can't. How do you tell this to, to a rape survivor? You can't. How do you tell this to a child who was raised in an abusive home? You can't. This theology is missing depth and richness and true security. So now let's take a look at the next verse. Because we need to take a look at that word good. Because if we just read good, it, it seems like what I just said is right. But you have to read the next verse. We're going to read them both together. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that they might be the firstborn among many brothers. So what is the good? What is that good? God works all things together for the good of those who love him, right? What is the good? We need to define it. And the answer is to be conformed to the image of his son. To be made more and more and more and more, gradually, progressively, more like Jesus. That's called sanctification. Until the end of our days, when we are fully sanctified and we have been made right in right standing with God as we stand before him, that is our good. That is where our hope is. You see, if you have the other understanding, the one where God's going to work all of our earthly problems out in earthly time with earthly good, someday the rug's going to get pulled out from underneath you. 
you're going to have nothing left, nothing to grasp a hold of. However, this working together of all things for our good so that we can be made more and more into the likeness of Jesus is not something that God does some of the time. This is something that he does all the time for those he loves, for those who are saved. He has unending, ceaseless, secret care for us. We know he is good. We know he is sovereign. So we know he can be trusted when we don't understand his plan. What else can we learn from this passage? We can learn that God often uses the weak and powerless to accomplish his plan. We see this in the Hebrew midwives. You see, Israelites, we talked, we talked earlier about these Israelites as Pharaoh was slowly trying to dehumanize them, make them look as, like less than than human. We actually have these, these less than human section of the Egyptian population, and then you have these women who in their time, I'm sorry ladies, it's just reality, in those days women were traded and sold in order to make their parents' households stronger. Their testimony wasn't even valid in a court of law. So the women were less than the men in that culture. We don't believe that here, just being clear. Okay. <laughs> just had to be clear. I just want to make sure people don't think that. Anyways. In that culture, these, the, the women were less than. So what we have are these midwives who are a less than part of a less than part of the Egyptian nation. They're pretty much bottom of the barrel as far as cultural goes. In the eyes of the world, they had nothing of real value to offer other than as a potential trading position to make my own household stronger as a man. They had no real power. They couldn't even testify in law, in, in a court of law. Yet, what did they do? By just simply not taking action, by just not doing what Pharaoh told them to do, they were able to thwart Pharaoh's plan. In fact, just in this story of Exodus, we see five women being used as God's instrument to accomplish his plan. Here with the two midwives, later on with Moses' mother, and then Moses' sister, and then finally with Pharaoh's daughter. These midwives were acting in faithful obedience, and that is exactly what is commanded of us. Leave the details and the inner workings of God's plan to him. They're beyond our understanding anyways. They're secret. We can't get it. Why do we need to worry about what God is trying to accomplish? We need to worry about being obedient. Leave the results of the plan to him and just focus on being obedient in every situation. So here's an encouragement for all you young women, women in general, young men, boys, girls, old people, anyone who thinks maybe they're less than. Here's the good news. Ready? We're all less than. You probably thought I was going to say we're all equal and, and good, right? That's the normal thing to say. But if we look at the Bible accurately and we view our position accurately in light of eternity, we're all less than. None of us have the ability to accomplish anything good without God's help. So if you're struggling with looking at others as more than you 
and you're waiting around to be good enough to serve God, stop it. We're all less than good enough apart from Christ. We accomplish good things by the help and grace of God through obedience to him. And finally, last thing we can learn from this passage, our fear should be placed correctly. It must be placed correctly. So I want to start off here with defining what I mean by fear. I'm I'm not saying panic. I'm not saying a frightening that God is going to strike you down at any moment with bolts of lightning. He could. Let's be clear. He absolutely could. That's not what I'm saying, though. It's such... It's so much more than that kind of fear. This is being in awe and wonder of who he is. It's not just that he could crush us. It's not less than that, but that he is huge and powerful. I want to share a little bit of an experience that I had when I was 18. I went over to Africa, lived with my Um, aunt and uncle for a month just to experience the life of a long-term missionary for a short term. I just lived with them, did what they did, followed them around. It was fantastic. It was an amazing experience. And one day, we had a day off, and they took me to the ocean. Now, I'm going to tell you something. Up until that day, I had never been to an ocean before. And since then, I've still never been to an ocean before. I don't know what's with me in oceans. Yeah, it was an amazing experience. It was fantastic. But we went at the time of day. It was, it was just the right time of day that when we got there, the tide was starting to go out. And it was fun. You know, it kind of pulled on you a little bit, and you're like, oh, this is fun. And then it started getting more and more strong. And then we made it a game because I'm a stupid 18-year-old, right? We're like, hey, this is fun. It kind of pulls us out to sea a little bit. And then we stand up, and we walk back out, and it's really fun. Except for it got to a point where even dumb 18-year-old me was afraid. There was a moment in which all of us realized, okay, this is, this is too much. If the ocean were to actually really grab a hold of us and we missed standing up or we just, just missed, there'd be nothing we could do. We are completely powerless to change this situation. The ocean is too big. The ocean is too powerful We don't mess with it. We were afraid. Now, were we afraid, panicking, running up and down the beach? No. We we certainly acted in wisdom. We got out. We're done. That's it. No more. So if we look then and we think of this kind of fear, this fear that I was feeling as as the riptide was starting to get stronger, if we look at that and we think and we place that onto God, We should feel tiny compared to God. We are tiny, but we should feel it. And feeling that tininess, that is what causes awe and wonder at who he is. Why would he think of me? I can't answer that, except for for his own glory. Why would he the creator of the universe who upholds and governs all of it, who is holding all of creation together right now in his hand, he is concerned with me? 
He's concerned with you? Why? There's nothing in me that would, that would make that worthwhile to him. I know that. Trust me. I'm terrible. You don't even want to know what goes on in my head some days. And, and I know the, for a fact that every single one of you doesn't want me to know what goes on in your head. Right? We are gross, disgusting people. And yet God is rich in his mercy and rich in his grace. And he considers us. So as we think about that, we just, I'm in awe of who he is. I'm in awe of the fact that he would, he would consider me. I'm in awe of the fact that even if he didn't consider me, he is justified in destroying me completely. And he chooses not to. You see, we use the word awesome very casually these days. I'm guilty. I do. Especially with the youth kids. They're like, hey, this is going on. I'm like, that's awesome! Right? We know what we mean. I'm, we're just like, oh, that's really exciting. That's really cool. Neat. That's not what awesome really means, though. That's not what awesome means. God is awesome in that we are in awe of him. He is infinitely impressive and daunting. He is infinitely admirable. We are tiny specks of dust compared to him. And even that analogy completely falls down because he's infinite. That's not even small enough to compare to him. See, all authorities on earth do not cause the same level of fear in a Christian as the fear of God causes. Proper fear and respect and awe of the power and sovereignty of God does not, I want to be clear, it does not necessarily remove fear, respect, and awe of the power of other people and of situations. I'll say that again. Proper fear, respect, and awe of the power of God does not necessarily remove fear, respect, and awe of the power of people or situations in our life. We have an amazing example of that going on right now in our nation with this COVID-19 scare. Even if we correctly apply our theology and we look to God and we say, you are big, you are great, we don't understand your plan, we trust you, even if we do that, there can still be fear. There can still be a level of concern. Right? I'm just being honest. However, proper fear, respect, and the awe of the power and sovereignty of God also does not mean we should live without wisdom in our actions. That anything goes and God is in control anyway, so our choices don't matter. That's not true. And I'll give you a great example of that. Now is a terrible time to take up a habit of licking doorknobs. <laughs> terrible. That would not be wise. We all agree on that, right? It's not a great idea just because you believe in the sovereignty of God to go play out in the street with blindfolded. Terrible idea. It's really clear when I say something ridiculous like that, but yet it's, it's a little bit harder when we get into the, the complexities and nuances of life every day, especially when there is an active and present danger of some level, overhyped or not, dangerous or not, it's there. And in these moments, it's difficult, even for Christians, 
to look past that and look past that fear and place our fear correctly on God. You see, it's him who we should be in awe of. It's him who we should be in fear of. Here's what proper fear and respect and awe of the power and sovereignty of God does mean. It means that we have the proper priority with who decides our actions, just like these Hebrew midwives had. I absolutely believe, 100%, Bible doesn't tell us this, but I believe it, these midwives had fear of Pharaoh. Why wouldn't they? Pharaoh already had control over their lives. He was a unilateral dictator in the land. No one could tell him not to do whatever he wanted to do. He made all the choices. He had absolute power over their lives. He caused them to be slaves. He worked them ruthlessly. He caused the entire nation of Egypt to turn against this people group. And yet, and yet, they disobeyed Pharaoh. They came up with a ridiculous lie, completely ridiculous, and obeyed God's law anyways because they feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. Our fear is not in what man can do to us, but in the God that we serve. Let's be clear, man can do a lot. They can kill us. Man can harm us. Man can destroy our reputation. Man can do many, many, many things to us, but in light of eternity, nothing is worth any value. In light of eternity, it's nothing. So what can we do with this? Let's wrap this all together. Days of darkness are also going to be in your life. If you've lived longer than a few days, you've already experienced this to some level. I hope not to the level that these Hebrew women and men had with the destruction of their babies. But you've experienced days of darkness. Most of us have experienced grief. Most of us have experienced absolute despair, wondering what to do next. Some days will be dark because of mild hardship. Some days will be darker because it seems like our spirit can't even bear the weight. So the question is, where is your hope going to be found in those dark days? For non-Christians, here, I told you I had something for you. For non-Christians who are in this room, I'm sorry to tell you, that's the end of it. You don't have hope. Nothing that's, nothing that's permanent. You don't have any sure, 100% guarantee hope that you can grab a hold of in days of darkness. You don't have it. Everything that I've been talking about this morning, the hope that we have in God's sovereignty and the fact that we are in awe of him, and the fact that he is working together all things for our good as his sons and daughters, that doesn't apply to you. Everything you can place your trust in is temporary. Your only hope, and here's the good news, your only hope is to recognize that you have committed sin against God and are his enemy. That's not a great place to be. Let's be clear. When you've sinned against an eternal, infinite God, the punishment is eternal and infinite. But God was so rich in mercy and grace that he sent his son Jesus to live a perfect life, 
to die on our behalf, to take the punishment that is directed at us because we sinned against God, to take that and then to declare before his father, Justin is righteous even though I'm not. See, he places his righteousness on those that he saves. And when God looks at me, all he sees is Jesus. He does not see the dirtiness of my sin anymore. You can be declared as being righteous just like that, in good standing, legally, good standing with God by simply placing your trust in Jesus. I challenge you, don't go another day, don't go another minute without placing your trust in Jesus. When these days of darkness come in your life, and maybe you're living it right now, when they come, you need the hope that is found in Jesus and Jesus alone. Otherwise, what's left for you is despair. So how about for us Christians here? Let's be clear, this, uh, this sermon's been a bit of a roller coaster, right? Ups and downs and all over. The depths of the evil that we have seen in this passage, the depths of the evil that is currently at work in our world right now, is overwhelming without hope in Christ. The depth of hope, though, that we have in Christ during good times and dark times is never-ending. God is working secretly, ceaselessly, for our good. He uses those who are weak and powerless... And out of that obedience and fear and awe to God, we have hope, never-ending. So as we think about this, Christians, I want to close with looking at a passage in Psalm 139. Worship team, come on up. O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand on me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. This God that I just described from Psalm 139, this is Jehovah Shammah, the God, the Lord who is there. He is there. He sees what you are going through. He is with you as you're going through it. Let's keep reading verse 13. 
For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my, my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. This God is El Royi, the God who sees. See, we serve a God who is there and a God who sees. This is the awe-inspiring God that we serve, church. Though darkness may come against you, though you may be experiencing deep grief from the loss of a loved one, I encourage you to remember this definition of God's sovereignty. I think I have it up there, too. God is present and active in all creation. His eye is watching. His hand is working to uphold and govern all creation, to fulfill all his purposes for his glory and for the good of his children. Amen. Pray with me. Father, Thank you for the timeliness of this passage, God, as we look to fear and anxiety in the world over this virus scare. God, thank you for your providence in bringing this passage this morning for this time, God, to redirect our attention onto you and not onto the fear that we may be feeling in any situation, that fear that we may be feeling with anyone God, direct our hearts, direct our eyes onto you. God, help us to trust in the fact that you are good. Help us to trust in the fact that you are in control, that you are sovereign, that your eye is, work, your eye is seeing and your hand is working to uphold and govern all of creation for our good and your glory. God, it's true whether we believe it in our hearts or not, but help us to believe it. Father, I pray that you would bring this church closer to you. God, that every time we feel this temptation to feel panic or to feel concern or anxiety or fear on any level, that God, that would be a reminder to us to cast our fears, to cast our concerns and our cares on you and to trust in your plan, that you are working in secret and that we don't understand your plan, but you are still good. God, I pray that you would redirect us as a church, bring revival into our hearts. Make us concerned only with obeying you and trusting you. God, I pray that you would do this for the sake of your great name, your amazing, holy, righteous name, and for your glory, because you are worthy. God, not because we are, but because you are that out of this, we would spread forth this message of hope into a world that has none. God, I pray that you would do this for your kingdom and your glory. Amen.